Uh, usually in our culture, and it's been this way for a long time, uh, when we talk about a topic like this, when we talk about failure, uh, maybe you talked about it in high school or in junior high, it's usually spun in these kind of ways. Uh, you talk about Abraham Lincoln and how uh, for 29 years there's just like systematic failure. And he didn't get this job and he didn't win that office and he didn't win that seat in the Senate. He didn't do this and he didn't do this and he didn't do this. And then finally in 1860, he becomes president. Like kind of goes from almost obscurity to presidency. Or you hear about uh, Hall of Fame professional baseball players who were known for their hitting. And if you look at their batting averages and all their percentages... They got out two-thirds of the time. But they were professional, and it's awesome, and they had this great life. And, or you hear about Thomas Edison, who, uh, whose teachers, they said he was stupid. And he got fired from job after job because he was too lazy. And he tried unsuccessfully a thousand times to make a light bulb before he got it right. Or you hear about Steve Jobs... Um, who made this thing called the Apple Watch, and it's amazing. That's all he ever did. He made the Apple Watch. Um, But before he made the Apple Watch, and everything else in the world, um, he was a failure. Like, he was a failure in business. He was a college dropout. Uh, He was fired as a tech executive. And then Apple happened in, like, boom. The most successful businessman in the history of the world, one of the richest people in the world before he passed away several years ago. But like that's the narrative about failure is it always starts terribly in some blaze of fire and then it ends in this blaze of glory. And it's amazing. We celebrate them and it's like, oh, that's awesome. So go be like Steve Jobs. That's all. Like go be awesome. Take your crappy life and go be awesome. And so if that's how we normally think about failure, then this passage is the anti-story about failure. It is like the anti-narrative to how we are told and encouraged to process failure. As as Muriel and Meg read for us, Peter, earlier in in the gospel account, some from Mark and some from John's gospel, he declares with bravado to Jesus that I will never leave you. Even if everyone else passes or leaves you, I will never leave you, Jesus. He is all in on Jesus, and three times, and Jesus looks at him and says, look, you're going to deny me. No, I won't. Okay. So what does he do? Denies him. Three times. Then the rooster crows. Peter, Peter is the epic failure. He's the epic picture of failure. And just at that moment where we expect Peter to, to climb out of it after the rooster crows, he can't because Jesus is dead. So Peter is left in his failure, in his abandonment of Jesus. He can't cover up for it. He can't claw his way out. He can't take that trajectory to being awesome. Jesus is dead. Now imagine, if you will, what it would be like for Peter every time he saw a rooster crawling around the city. Or every time he saw a fire, because it was next to that fire that this woman asked him if he was with Jesus, and he kept telling her no. Imagine every time he saw a rooster or the smoke of a fire coming up, how Peter would feel. That shame and that, that guilt and that knowing that he abandoned his Lord, his friend, in the time of his greatest need because of self-protection. He didn't want to be known. He didn't want to be associated with Jesus because Jesus was on the way out. 
It's a bit like how every time you see that professor of the class where you cheated in that class, whether it's on a homework or on a test or on a project, it's like every time you see him or her and you kind of cower away and put your head down because you just can't bear looking at them. Their sheer presence makes your body kind of get queasy. Or it's like when you see that guy or girl that, that you did that with across campus. It can be like way across campus, and you do everything you can to avoid them because you just can't stomach the thought of being in their presence or maybe passing close to them. Or it's like looking at your parents after years of, of really being ugly to them, disobeying them in many ways, um, being downright mean to them even, or to your siblings, and you go home and you just retreat to your room because you can't stand that. It's like me at ACAC when I've told many of you, like, hey, I'll, like, we should get together. That'd be awesome. We should get lunch. That'd be great. And instead of, like, engaging with people in line at ACAC, I stare at my phone because I'm too insecure about who I might see that I've promised that I would text to get together with, and I haven't. It's that thing we do, and it's the thing that Peter would have been doing. Our failure is just ever-present in our life, and it comes from all kinds of places and all sorts of ways. But it is real. And tonight's passage is not just about Jesus and Peter's failure, but tonight's passage gets into Jesus and our failure. What do you and I do with all the stuff that we haven't done or all the stuff we have done? What do we do with that? That's what this passage is about. This is John chapter 21, the last chapter of the book of John. We're going to see this final encounter between Jesus and Peter. It says this, After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and revealed himself in this, he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to him, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he, had, he, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for, there were not, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and, and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although they were, there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Sorry, I put that in there twice. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. 
And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to Simon a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. In this story tonight, we're seeing three big movements of how Jesus meets Peter in his failure and how Jesus, therefore, meets us in our failure. And the first one we're going to see is that Jesus pursues us gently in our failure. He pursues us gently in our failure. As we get deep into this encounter... I want us to first see that Jesus pursues, he pursues us, and he pursues us gently. He pursues us, and he pursues us gently. Let's look at that very first one, the very fact that he pursues us. Look down at verse 1. It says that Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. And it goes on, and it says it again, that he reveals himself to the disciples. So look, if the whole thrust of this passage and kind of the setup of what's going on in that boat scene, if all of it is driving toward this interaction between Jesus and Peter on the beach, then it is absolutely significant that it is Jesus who takes the initiative here. That Jesus is coming to Peter and the other disciples. He goes on the offensive Verse 14 says that this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to them after his resurrection. And the reason that I draw this out, and we're not spending very long here, but we must point out that, that Jesus is unlike your manipulative friend or your manipulative boyfriend or girlfriend who, when you do something to them that, that hurts them or when they're frustrated with you, they kind of withdraw and they get quiet and they don't respond to text or they send like a, a cryptic text back and then wait a long time. And you're kind of left in that, that, oh, like what is going on here? Like what is wrong between me and you? Let's just get over it already. Jesus does not play us like that. He comes toward Peter in his failure. When you fail him and let him down, he doesn't stand off to the side. He doesn't become hidden. He doesn't jump behind closed doors and say, you got to come find me. He comes out and he finds us. He doesn't make us pay for what we've done. Jesus pursues us in our failure. It's so, it's so like God to do that, isn't it? I don't know if you know the story, but way back in the very beginning of the Bible, after Adam and Eve, the first people to ever sin against God in any way, it says what in chapter 3? That God came, in, in chapter 3, God came looking for them and said, 
Where are you? He draws them out of their shame. They're, they're hiding. They're covering themselves. And God says, where are you? It's like Jesus with Nathaniel in John chapter 1 that we looked at the first week of the semester where he engages Nathaniel, who's a skeptic, and, and he asks him, he's like, Nathaniel, what are you seeking? Tell me, what are you about? What are you looking for? And he draws him out. That's what Jesus does. He pursues us and draws us out. But look, secondly, he's gentle in the way that he does this. He's not boisterous and obnoxious. He goes onto the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and he calls out to them and says, Children, do this. Now, there's all kinds of irony in this. Right? Jesus is calling to a boat of professional fishermen. And he's like, hey guys, it's easy. If you'll just put your nets like 10 feet this way, there'll be tons of fish. And I was kind of, as I was thinking about this, I'm trying to imagine how this played out. And this is how it worked in my mind. Is that when Jesus says, children, do this, they don't know that it's him yet. And so I'm picturing these disciples, these professional fishermen out on the boat. And they're like, who is this old man on the beach? Like telling us how to do our job. Like, okay, I guess we'll do it. Like, so get him off our backs, right? He's the old man. Pay him deference. Honor him. So they take their nets and they throw it to the other side. And bam, they freaking nailed it. Like the honey hole is right there. They're getting skunked 10 feet this way. And they get in the waters right here. 153 huge fish. They couldn't even bring their nets on board. Does Jesus, like, taunt them? No, he just says, do this. And they do it, 153 fish. What happened after that? Verse 7, John, who is the disciple Jesus loved. Isn't that awesome? So it says this throughout John's gospel. John calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. That's awesome and kind of arrogant. Um, John tells Peter, looks up and says, it's the Lord. And what does Peter do? He hides in embarrassment. He gets down in the, in the bow of the boat. And he, he's under all the nets. He's like, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. I, I can't go be near him. No, what does it say? He put his clothes back on because I guess they got undressed when they fish. I don't know how that works. But uh, he throws his clothes on and it literally says he threw himself into the sea. Jesus, like he's taken off and he's trying to run through the water but kind of swimming and running. And then he's more running because it's shallower. And he gets up there and he's huffing and puffing. And it's Jesus. Now, you tell me what's going on here, because I don't know about you. When I failed someone, when I've screwed up, I'm in avoid mode, but not Peter. Peter is running. He is doing everything he can to be close to Jesus. What do you think Peter knows about Jesus that we don't? We hide in our shame and our embarrassment and our failure and Jesus runs to Jesus. When I was uh, a junior in college, I had a crush on a girl named Katie Mann. And through a series of, of casual observances and minimal fact-finding, I had basically charted out every move of her week. And, um, you know, I, some people call it stalking. I called it market research, right? You're just putting together the full picture of what we're looking at. And so uh, w- one afternoon, I happened to be walking by Katie's house when she happened to be taking her dog for a walk. And uh, what's wrong with that? 
and um, I said, oh, Katie, hey. Hey, how are you? Funny seeing you here in your front porch. Um, I was like, you know, I was going to go for a run, but I'll walk with you if you're going to walk your dog. And so for whatever reason, she indulged me. And we walked for a little bit, about 10 minutes or so. And I'm, I'm like, it worked. All my crazy stalking worked. And I am on a walk with Katie and she doesn't hate me. This is great. Well, about 10 minutes later, um, I found out that wasn't true. So she looks at me and she says, Brent, I don't like you. In the sweetest way possible. <laughs> Brent, I don't like you. Uh, and I'd appreciate it if you'd stop driving by my house so often. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that happened. So the thing I'm still feeling like 15 years later, imagine that 15 years ago. Utterly shocked, utterly humiliated, just all the way down. And I don't think I drove down her street again ever. And it was a major street in Norman. Like, I don't think I ever went in the vicinity of that place. It was too painful. Uh, Not Peter. Like, that's weird with Katie, and that's very embarrassing. She was not the Lord, and I hadn't done the most, like, cosmic source of abandonment possible. I did something weird that probably could have gotten arrested for. But Jesus denied, uh, Peter denied Jesus three times after he promised he would never leave him. And here we see Peter running toward Jesus. Look, y'all, Jesus had revealed himself to Peter in such a way that Peter knew that Jesus would be gentle with him in his failing. He knew that whatever that interaction was to hold, that Jesus would be gentle to him. And so we get, this is how it works, that in God's presence, because of the way that he is, he's loving and he's gentle and he's patient and he's gracious, whatever it is that we bring to the table, it begins to melt because of his warmth. All the things that, that keep us back and make us not ever want to go to that square block of God's vicinity, God's warmth and His grace and His love and His tenderness and His mercy, it melts that. And Peter knew that about Jesus. Um, when I was, uh, later, when I was dating a much better woman named Sarah, um, I never dated Katie at all, actually. And... Uh, <laughs> It's fun. It's really fun. Um, one of the things that Sarah and I later reflected on about that we really loved about each other from a very quick moment is we, we sinned against each other when we were dating, uh, just in, in different ways. And we later came to find out that through that, as we realized that we were forgiving each other and, and quick to forgive, we realized how close that was making us. And that we began to really love that about each other, that, that I would forgive her for the things that she did and that she would forgive me for the lots of things that I did and had done. Like, that endeared me to her. That's what Jesus does with Peter. That's what he had done for a long time with Peter, and Peter knew that he would do it again because that's who he is. That's how he does it. Jesus' gentle pursuit has Peter running toward him. We see something else in the passage. Jesus doesn't just pursue us in our failures. He draws us out of our failure. Look back at verse 9 and 10. 
It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Okay, so if this were happening in 2017 and we were using the language of our day, when Peter gets onto the shore and sees a fire with the smoke going up, he would be triggered. Like the trigger warning of all trigger warnings, like, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. Can you imagine that? But not just the fire, the fish. Let's talk about those two things. The fish, they went from having nothing in their boats to having more than enough. Couldn't even pull it in. I don't know. Could Peter have remembered any other time that they essentially had no food and they went to having more than enough? Oh, yeah. Awesome. John tells us in John chapter 6, on the very same sea... They had just like a little boy's couple small fish and a few small loaves. And there's thousands of people needing to eat. And what does Jesus do? He takes that little bit of something and he makes stuff for everyone. Fish and bread aplenty. And they gather up more than they started with. And here's Peter on that same sea with the same bread in the same fish scenario. And he is face to face with the Jesus who had done all these miraculous things and... The Jesus who he had failed. So there's the fish, but there's also the fire that Peter's dealing with. The fire. The fire. I mean, the only thing that's missing from this is like a rooster running on the beach. Where Peter's just like, oh my gosh, could it be worse? We see that Jesus stands next to Peter in his shame and in his failure. And he cooks him a meal. In the place of of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus offers him grace. He says, I see that fire too, Peter. I know what you're thinking. I created you. Let me serve you. Let me do something for you that you can't imagine. Let me ask you this. Can you imagine Jesus standing next to you as you hold your phone or your laptop, that whatever it is that has you that you've been looking at porn for for the last ten years? Can you imagine Jesus standing next to you and saying, Hey, I want to spend time with you? Or you've got the gap shopping bag or the banana bag or the anthro bag, that, that place where you go and escape when you don't want to feel life anymore. Can you imagine Jesus coming and locking arms with you on the other arm saying, hey, let's take a walk. How are you doing? Can you imagine Jesus walking into that stack of perfect papers that you have sacrificed all your relationships and you've given all your time? You have, you've essentially worshipped at the throne of your grace. Can you imagine Jesus pulling out your papers and saying, wow, you did really great work here. Can you imagine, Jesus, as you stuff a beer in your coat pocket, he comes and he says, hey, can we hang out tonight? Can you imagine him coming into your place of greatest embarrassment? That, that thing that you think Jesus would never want anything to do with. And if he knew about that, which he does, but if he knew about that, he would surely not want anything to do with you. And he comes right there and he offers you grace. He offers you himself. He cooks you a meal. And friends, 
To know Jesus is to know that. That he is gracious. He doesn't make us pay for it before he comes to us. He doesn't make us pay for it at all. It's grace. He pursues us in our failure. He loves us right in that place. He doesn't require more of you. He does something for you. Jesus intentionally draws Peter into his place in remembrance of his failure so that he can draw Peter out of his failure. Did you see it? He takes Peter into his failure so he can bring him out of his failure. Jesus triggers Peter so that Jesus can heal Peter. He essentially is is causing Peter to name his sin. He's making Peter get specific with what he has done. It's right there. It's the fire. It's the fish. It's all right there. Let me tell you this. If your sin is vague, if you're like, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. Nobody's perfect. If you are a vague sinner, then Jesus will forever be a vague Savior to you. He will never be real to you if your sin has never been real to you. If you can't look at the fires of your life and just admit, I am a dumpster fire. It's not one thing, it's all the things. And if you can't name that, then friends, you will have a hard time imagining Jesus as something other than this model figure of what you should be like. Nice, forgiving, gentle, kind, whatever. But if you will see that Jesus is a specific Savior for your specific sin, then you will run to Him. Think about how this works with your roommates. Your roommate never washes her dishes, and I'm going feminine here, but it could probably be worse on the masculine side. Whatever. Your roommate never washes her dishes. She never puts her clothes over to the dryer. She does feel the liberty liberty to put your clothes in the dryer and shrink your stuff which makes you want to shoot her. She never vacuums. Then she leaves the heater on for all of Thanksgiving week and runs up the bill. And she comes to you at the end of the next, at the end of this semester, at the end of the week after Thanksgiving, and she gives you this big general, hey, I'm sorry. How do you feel in that moment? Crazy. You feel crazy mad. Because... She kind of offered an apology, and you feel like you should say, I forgive you, but like, I'm sorry? Just this general thing? What are you sorry for? Tell me about it, because I've been doing your stuff for the last 12 weeks, and I'm frustrated, and I don't really want to live with you next semester. I'm sorry? What if, however, she comes to you and she says this? Hey, I've been thinking about how I've treated you this semester. I've been thinking about the ways I haven't really taken care of my part of the apartment and how I've really been pretty sloppy and how I've been mean to you. And I told you I do the dishes and I never do. I never take trash out. I left the heater on over Thanksgiving. I've done all these things and I want to ask you to forgive me for those. I can't make it up. I'll try to pay you back some for that crazy heater bill. Like, I'm really sorry. Will you please forgive me? What's the difference in that? Everything. You get the sense that she owns it, that she understands what happened. Friends, that's what it's like with Jesus. 
that if you want the warmth of that relationship, you have to be honest about what your failure is. And just tell him. He knows. It's not like he's going to get surprised, like, oh my gosh, you did that? He knows it. You have to hear his voice of pardon. You have to hear and feel and receive his grace in your failure, specifically. There's even more in this passage. Jesus looks at us in our failure, but he also sends us forth from our failure. Look at that. Jesus, as the great good shepherd, invites Peter, the Peter who has failed him and abandoned him in every way. Jesus invites Peter to feed my lambs, tend my sheep, take care of my people, feed my sheep, Peter. Three times he he exhorts Peter to go out and love the people that Jesus loved the most. Can you imagine that? Jesus loves Peter. He restores Peter, but Peter has failed him. And so you would think that Jesus would like relegate Peter to the B team and say like, Yeah, you were a big deal, but now you're kind of over here. He looks at Peter and says, you go feed my sheep, love my sheep, shepherd them, feed them, take care of them, Peter. Pastor them. This is scandalous. Scandalous. Because this is utterly not how things work in the world. Just let's think about the last couple weeks for a second. Harvey Weinstein. Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., and on and on and on and on we could go with that list. But just in the last few days, last few weeks, these men get accused. It comes out that they have been assaulting women, taking advantage of women, using their power to manipulate women in all kinds of ways, and, and men too. And what happens? As soon as the allegations come out, as soon as their confession comes out, they get dropped. No more TV shows with Louis C.K. Kevin Spacey is done. Harvey Weinstein is fired from his own company that he started. They are done, and rightly so. Rightly so. The movies they had planned to be in production are scrapped, and rightly so. What's so different about this situation with Peter? Jesus is the offended party He is the one who Peter has offended, who who Peter has hurt, who Peter has abandoned. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, I'm making you boss. I'm hiring you. I'm sending you to go care for the people that I love the most. Y'all, that is scandalous. It's a scandalous grace. It's a scandalous restoration. And so, as you sit here tonight, and as you think, yeah, but I'm not Peter. (laughs) I'm not an apostle. I'm just a junior at TU. I'm just a freshman at TU. You have to hear this. Two things. Three years before, the very same Peter was on the very same beaches of the very same sea, and the very same Jesus had looked at him, and, and to that point, Peter was nobody to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him three years before and says, follow me. And here we are three years later, after seeing Jesus do so many things, the miracles, after walking with Jesus through all this stuff, the highs and the lows, after he abandons Jesus, Jesus looks at him at the end 
After charging him to care for his people, Jesus says again to Peter, follow me. Now, what does that mean? That means that you never stop needing to follow Jesus. Jesus invites you in on the front end and says, come get close to me. Know my grace and my forgiveness for your failures. Receive my love and acceptance for you. Receive that on the front end and every other day after that. You never outgrow your need for God's grace. Because you will continue to fail. And Jesus will continue to be gracious. And you have to see that. Otherwise, you will burn out. Follow me. Follow me. Keep following me. You don't graduate from that. And secondly, if you're still thinking, how could God ever use me, though? How could God use me? Brent, you don't know what I've done. How could God use me? Notice that he said two times, he says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And one time he says, tend them, which that word also means shepherd them. Feed them. My, my grace, feed them. Think about this for a second. You may be thinking, I don't have much to give. I don't know the Bible that much. I can never lead Bible studies or I probably won't go on mission trips. Jesus, how can I serve you? He's saying, take the very meal that I gave Peter. I showed him my grace and his failure. Take that same grace, that same meal, and just tell others about it. Offer it to them. Be gracious with them when they fail you. Do that two times for every one time you feel like you need to shepherd someone or maybe tell them something hard about their life. Like, err on the side of being kind with people and gracious with them and offering them yourself and your love, your love and your life. And then as you get to know them and you're in their life, you may need to shepherd them and say, Hey, look, that's not the best thing for you to do. That's probably not best for you. That's not going to work out in the long run. You shouldn't date him. You shouldn't date her. Look, you probably shouldn't cheat on that test. I know it's going to mean something, but it's not what's best for you. And then you keep loving them, you keep being gracious to them, because that's what Jesus calls Peter to. Jesus says in Matthew ten forty two, Whatever, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water in my name, gives it to me. He gives it to me, Jesus says. I'm going to wrap up right here. Have, all, have any of y'all seen the movie The Fisher King? It's, a, it's, it's kind of an old movie now. I figure that might be a strikeout. But it's a, it's a movie that Robin Williams starred in, the late, great Robin Williams. And in that movie, um, Robin Williams plays, um, he's a little bit developmentally slow, a little bit mentally unstable. Uh, he's homeless. He's poor. And so in all of that peculiarity, he has been watching this woman every day in a less creepy way than I watched Katie Moon. And um, he's developed a crush on her. And it, again, it sounds creepy, but in the movie it's really gentle and it's endearing and all this stuff. And so he actually gets to the point of asking her out. And the woman that he had um, been drawn to, she was actually someone of pretty low confidence, um, she had, as, as you would find out, kind of been through the ringer with men. But they go out on a date, and they have a great time, and he is walking her up to her apartment at the end of the show, or at the end of the date. And she just, like, you can see it on her body, in her countenance. She gets sad and gets a bit distant. 
And he says, what is it? And she says this. She says, this is what will happen. You will come in the house and we will have a couple of drinks. You will sleep over and I'll wake up in the morning, but you will be distant. You aren't going to stay for breakfast. And I'm going to go to work feeling so good, but you aren't going to call. And I'm going to begin a slow descent to where I became to where I become nothing more than a small piece of dirt. And I don't really want to do that again. I don't know why I'm putting myself through this again. And at that point, Robin Williams has this pained look on his face, look of confusion and hurt. And he says this, he says, I don't want to come in because I'm not interested in coming up for a night, one night stand. I have a confession. I'm in love with you. I want to love you forever. Listen, I already know you. I know that you hate your job and you don't have many friends. I know that it takes you two tries to get out of your car every afternoon at lunch. I know that you feel awkward and uncoordinated and you don't feel like you're beautiful. I know what you eat for lunch, that you grab a jawbreaker before you go back to the office every day. I know the path you take home. I already know you and I love you. I think you are the greatest thing. And she stares at him and kisses him and touches his face and says... You are real, aren't you? And look, y'all, to know Jesus is to know that he knows every contour of your life. He knows every single time you failed in the very way that you failed. He knows all of your shame and all of your guilt. And all semester, we've been seeing that Jesus meets us in these very real places in our lives. And he comes to us and says, I love you. I don't want it to be a one-night high. I don't want to give you emotional feel-good. I want to join you. I want to be with you forever. And that's what's held out again tonight. It's the God who knows everything about you, the highs, the lows, and everything in between. And he offers you not some gimmick, not some five steps to the better you. He offers you himself and his grace. And he says, let me forgive you. Let me heal you. Let me take all of it and remake you. And let me use you. Because it's not just that Peter, that Jesus uses people like, like Peter. It's that Jesus only uses people like Peter. Because that's the only kind of people there are. Please pray with me.